Members of Detroit's media corps risked their lives in July 1967 to cover perhaps the city's most important story of the 20th century. While their report shaped the initial images most Detroiters had of the 1967 riot, the journalists have more lasting memories. Few events in the city's history changed Detroit like the 1967 riot. White flight to the suburbs intensified, as did racial polarization. Hundreds of businesses were burned, and Detroit's national image as a model city was ruined. But while the damage was immense, the majority of Detroiters that week experienced the sights and sounds of the riot by watching television or listening to the radio. No one in Detroit knew in late July 1967 that the city was just a few days away from an event that would make history. School was out. Teenagers were listening to rock and roll on WKNR and R&B on WCHB. Around town, television reporters were covering stories like the marital problems of Mayor Jerry Kavanaugh and the Tigers' efforts to win their first pennant in decades. Detroiters had watched national news coverage of the riots in Newark earlier in the month, but the common refrain in town was that the same thing couldn't happen here. Eric Smith says he'll never forget first hearing about the disturbance at 12th and Claremont. He was the assistant news director at WKNR Radio at the time. I remember it distinctly. I, well, you can't not remember it. It's one of those days that, much like the Kennedy assassination, you remember that moment in time. And it was July 23rd. Uh, we had, my wife and I had gotten up early that morning because we had plans to go out to Kensington Park with some friends for a picnic. And uh, we were assembling our picnic basket and the sandwiches and the stuff we were going to take out to the park. And I got a telephone call from one of the guys at the radio station. He said, something's going on uh, down on 12th Street. He said, nobody will talk. He said, but they're sending in, uh, he said, the uh, tactical mobile units. And he said, I think they're sending fire trucks somewhere. He said, but nobody will confirm anything for me. Gene Elsey was WCHB's news director in July 1967. He first heard the news during an early morning phone call from his boss. And it was uh, Dr. Wendell Cox, one of the owners of WCHB. Uh, I was the only news person at that moment. But Dr. Cox called me uh, early that morning and said, they are rioting on 12th Street and you need to get down there. There will be, in another hour or so, there will be a meeting at the uh, police precinct on Livernoy. Well, it's obvious there have been a lot of arsonists at work. Uh, there's some very major fire, fire, fires, uh, particularly in the Livernoy area, between Lodge and Livernoy, south and north of the uh, Grand Boulevard. And I said about 15 major fires raging over in that area. It's obvious that there's uh, been looting and other damage. It was a little difficult to see it this late at night. Most Detroiters still didn't know anything was wrong because city officials had convinced the media to keep a news blackout until Sunday afternoon. WKNR's Eric Smith. The news was being controlled by the power structure from City Hall to the police department. I mean, the initial, that morning, it was very hard to get any information. We could not get any information. My memory is that either City Hall or the police department or both asked us, the media in general, 
to keep a lid on it, to um, don't, don't, don't talk about riot. Don't say there's a riot in progress. Don't, uh, uh, don't use inflammatory expressions. Let us try and get a handle on it. But by the time that meeting was over, the situation was already out of control. Gene Elsey drove to the riot's epicenter to get a good look for himself. When I got into the area in general, uh, people were running all over the place. People were throwing things through windows, uh, trash cans and bricks, and uh, pulling the uh, security fences off of uh, the storefronts. Uh, it was just a madhouse. I mean, it was really a madhouse, and it was something that was frightening. Meanwhile, Eric Smith drove up Grand River to get an idea of what was going on there. He wasn't prepared for what happened next. I was kind of half watching what was going on, and I had my window down, and uh, I was recording some of this on a tape recorder, just the sounds of the turbulence in the street. And a red light flashed at Joy Road. I was right by the Riviera Theater there at Joy and Grand River. And I stopped for a red light. Uh, all this lawlessness is going on about me, and I stopped for a red light. And unfortunately, I was spotted um, by a group of very angry people in the crowd. And they surrounded my car and began rocking the car and turned it up on its side. They did not attempt to harm me. Uh, I got out of the car and began running. Governor George Romney called out the National Guard Sunday night, but the civil unrest continued to escalate. Meanwhile, radio and television stations were warning their personnel to prepare to work around the clock. Jerry Hodak, normally the weatherman on WJBK Channel 2, was pressed into full-time service as a reporter. Well, eventually a curfew was um, put into effect as of sunset. Everybody had to be off the streets. And uh, I think what what was most uh, um, impressive to me was just driving along the John Lodge Freeway or the Edsel Ford Freeway and not seeing another car anywhere in sight. They were just barren. They were devoid of any movement at all. I mean, I, it, it's like there was a nuclear holocaust and everybody had been wiped out and you were the only people left on Earth except for the fact that you heard all this noise in the background and you can see the fires burning. Will the department get a truck here, hopefully? Because that block of buildings is gone and next to it a gas station and behind it homes, people. As parts of the city burn, Detroit's black radio stations trying to calm listeners living in the neighborhoods in revolt. Jay Butler worked the afternoon shift at WCHB. He remembers Martha Jean the Queen's marathon broadcast on WJLB and her efforts to get rioters off the streets. After it got so bad, people were, I think there was something like five people had gotten killed at, at some point in time. 
And uh, then they brought in the National Guards. The Queen stayed up for that whole day, that whole day and night. I remember the broadcast on telling people to stay in, to stay off the streets, to stop rioting. And uh, she did that for at least 24 hours. And it is said to some degree that she had a lot to do with kind of coiling the, the disturbance that was going on. But looters, black and white, continued to roam the streets. Guardsmen escorted fire crews after one fireman was shot to death and others were pinned down by snipers. Eric Smith says sections of the city were simply in chaos. Walter Ruther called them the days of madness, and I don't think I've ever heard a better description of what I saw and what I felt and what I lived through in those four or five days. It was, I've often said they were the worst days of my life. I can't imagine having a more difficult time. By Monday, the civil disturbance had spread to the city's east side, as well as north along Livernoy, and city officials saw no end in sight. Governor George Romney asked President Lyndon Johnson to send federal troops into Detroit. As governor of the state of Michigan, I do hereby officially request the immediate deployment of federal troops into Michigan to assist state and local authorities in reestablishing law and order in the city of Detroit. I am joined in this request by Jerome P. Cavanaugh, mayor of the city of Detroit. National Guardsmen were already patrolling the city. WKNR Assistant News Director Eric Smith recalls the scene. Here I am, 24 years old, watching United States military tanks rumble down West Grand Boulevard in front of Henry Ford Hospital. That picture is indelibly impressed in my mind because I thought to myself, I'm a civilian standing in the city of Detroit watching U.S. military hardware rumble down the streets watching a 50 caliber machine gun open fire on an apartment building. I'm a, I was in a war. Uh, halfway around the world, friends of mine were in a war. They were fighting the Viet Cong. I was watching United States citizens fight United States citizens, kill United States citizens. Were you bewildered or angry or what? I don't think it's right for my people to act the way that they're acting. This is all I can say about the thing because we're fighting one war now in Vietnam and we're losing as it is. So, I mean, why should we come back here and fight a war among them? I mean, among ourselves. Just a few blocks from Eric Smith's location, his boss, WKNR News Director Philip Nye, crouched in the shadow of the General Motors building to report on the chaos. This area full of snipers tonight. The vehicle sounds in the background are the tanks, armored personnel carriers. That would sound more like a sniper shot, the ones we've just heard. They're firing moving more troops in. I'm looking up now, uh, a truck of troopers coming in.
This occurred just as we moved down from the 12th and Euclid area where we were in with the guard. Four casualties had to be moved out there. And that's the sound you're hearing all over Detroit this evening. As the gun battles continued throughout the city, journalists tried to stay out of the line of fire while filing their reports. But for the city's black broadcasters, just trying to get to work was a harrowing experience. WCHB News Director Gene Elzey knew he would be on the streets during the curfew, so he prepared himself by placing his press pass and his driver's license on the dashboard of his car. He drove straight down the center of Livernois, with both hands visible on the steering wheel but he still wasn't prepared for his meeting with a group of guardsmen. As I approached Davison, it got really scary because I could see in front of me uh, National Guard troops, and it was a flying wedge. They spread out all the way across the street from sidewalk to sidewalk. I approached them, I slowed, uh, they began to level their guns at me. Uh, They... Uh, converged on both sides of the car. In front of the car, there were those behind the car, all with rifles pointed at me. And I said, I am uh, a newscaster. Here is my press pass and my driver's license. Always careful to keep my hands up. They just continued to holler and scream, and you could hear uh, the bolt action of the rifles as they... uh, were putting shells into place in those rifles. I thought I would die. I mean, I literally thought I was going to die that morning. But Elsie managed to keep us cool, despite the danger that stared him in the face. They went through my clothing. They went through the trunk of the car. They pulled everything out of the trunk. After they did all of this, they looked at the press pass and they looked at the driver's license, and they said simply, okay, you can go. And I thought, you know, why would you do this to me? Uh, you know, I've, I've got proof. But they began to move on, still in this flying wedge, past me and on up the street. Uh, I had to pick up all the stuff and put it back in the car. This thing just unnerved me. I mean, as I think about it now, it unnerves me because it frightened me beyond belief. Now, all these police, every time you see one of them, he's going to stop a brother. He don't never stop no white. That's why we're out here riding, and we're going to keep on riding until they stop all this. Abuse of black Detroiters was common and merely fueled the anger that originally had led to the riot. A few miles away from where Elsie was stopped, Eric Smith received his own lesson in race relations from a Detroit police officer. I saw a 16-year-old boy. He was taking a television set. Highland Appliance used to have a warehouse building on the corner of, I think it was Grand River in in the Ford Expressway. And it was an alleyway that ran behind that building. And I had pulled up, I don't know if it was Sunday or Monday, I don't even know what day it was. I pulled up and, and saw this youngster, might have been 15, 16 years old, darting out 
from the building down this alleyway carrying a television set, you know, a little portable TV set. And a Detroit cop was there in the alley, and he yelled at that kid, Stop! And the kid kept running, he said, Stop or I'll shoot. And he shot that kid with a shotgun. I saw him fly up in the air, the television set go flying. It was a child, a child for a television set. And that's why Days of Madness, Walter Ruther's phrase, fits that so well for me. By Friday, July 28th, most of the fires had been put out and the soldiers began packing up to leave town. Reporters caught up on their sleep and then began asking some tough questions, mostly of themselves. WJBK's Jerry Hodak. I don't see how it could not change somebody. I think it changed me as a human being. Uh, it had to. If it didn't, then heaven help you. I think from one standpoint as a journalist, uh, suddenly uh, we went from covering ribbon cuttings and uh, interviews with public officials to covering essentially what was a war and uh, all of the problems attendant to that. And then, of course, there's the underlying social issues that had to be dealt with. And um, how did this happen? How, how did we allow it to happen? Is there something that we should have been doing that we didn't do? We began to become very introspective about what we were portraying on television for a lot of years. Were we giving a picture of our city that was an accurate one? I mean, we began to ask ourselves a lot of questions with good reason. The official final toll... 43 dead, 467 injured, 2,500 stores looted or burned, and an estimated $80 million in damage. Detroit was changed forever. This is Jerome Vaughn.